UK Motor Talk. Welcome to the latest UK Motor Talk podcast. In this issue, we're going to be talking about the latest scary numbers on MOT failures on relatively new vans. We will investigate the uh, noxious toxicity of HGVs, and particularly diesel cars, with an announcement just made this morning. We review the weekend's US Grand Prix. What a great race it was, spoilt indeed by uh, a judging decision at the end of it. We preview next week's London Brighton Veteran Car Run, which uh, we will be covering in some depth. So uh, audio and video from that to come next week. We look at the latest, safest child seat. Are somewhat surprised by uh, Volkswagen's latest uh, car sales, or should that be car delivery figures. Comment on a new McLaren sponsorship deal. It's in the bag. And preview... A long-distance South American rally announced just last week, which seeks to recreate the 1948 South American Grand Prix. UK Motor Talk News. Graham Benj. Today, Mayor of London Sadiq Khan has announced a new toxicity, or T-charge, as it's becoming known. Interestingly, this will be applied over and above the congestion charge, the current £11.50 for just going into certain parts of London particularly the City of London, the new map will apparently overlay that map, so you'll, in fact, have to pay £21.50, an extra 10 quid, if your car is a pre-2006, if your car is pre-Euro 4. Now, this is obviously all about cleaning up what has become a, a desperate situation in certain parts of London. Unfortunately, the congestion charge map doesn't necessarily tie up with some of the most polluting parts of London. Classic case, probably the most polluted road in London, Euston Road. That's the one that goes past Euston Stations and Pancras, King's Cross, etc., etc., which is actually just outside the congestion charge area. The smaller detail, uh, less mentioned in all the news stories, is that there is an ultra-low emissions plan to be brought forward uh, towards the end of 2019 or 2020, which will be a far large area, will be far more extensive, far more expensive, and will uh, take most of the current fleet of London buses off the road to be replaced by hydrogen buses or electric buses. I, I would certainly welcome that. Will it keep the most polluting HGVs out of the city centre? Not sure of that, but with the amount of building works within that congestion charge going on at present, I think that's pretty unlikely. Even more dramatic is that diesel taxis will be taken off the road completely. From 2020, possibly 21, only battery taxis or hybrid taxis that meet certain emission standards will be allowed within the, uh, the roads uh, in London. Now, interestingly, already uh, the famous black cab seems to be disappearing. You know, there are new models from Mercedes particularly which are taking over. But it's to be seen whether this can be pushed through. Mayor Sadiq Khan is suggesting that 9,000 deaths a year can be directly attributed to pollution. Uh, I personally find that figure a little difficult to accept. Um, uh, it does seem quite enormous and perhaps the uh, methods of attribution are a bit tenuous. Certainly one expert that I consulted from one of the clean air bodies 
a professor who chose to be uh, nameless, his feeling was that, yes, it was essential that this work was done. Yes, the removal of the oxides of nitrogen, the CO2 and the carbon monoxide are all good things in themselves, but probably of that 9,000, only 1% to 2% would be affected by this particular piece of legislation. So where do we go from here? Well, clearly this is a step on the way. And also this is a step, I think in the right direction and following European trends certainly already, uh, Paris uh, has instituted similar legislation some months ago. Madrid is doing the same, Oslo is doing the same. And I think many of our other cities will soon follow suit if this is successful. They'll certainly be watching closely, particularly if there's a chance to see some uh, substantial revenue from it. Now, Mayor Khan's office suggests that this will affect 30 to 40,000 people per month. Now, at 10 quid ahead, I think you can do the sums. Across the year, it's clearly worth doing. He says all the money will be reinvested on cleaning up London's air. I'm certainly in favour of that. All the other uh, Euro politicians are saying the same thing, but you know, how long before Manchester, Birmingham, Brighton and Crawley and many, many other towns will want to join in? Won't be long. UK Motor Talk News. How safe are your child seats? There are agreed UK standards for child safety seats which dictate the direction of travel, the means of fixing, the size and age ranges. And all of the market have been very thoroughly tested. But that testing often is negated by the fact that people don't follow instructions when they're fitting them. More on that perhaps later. But if you want the very latest and very safest of child seats for your child, the market leader Maxi Cozy have just launched a new generation of child seats, beginning with one for the four to seven year age range. Now this one is uh, the first child safety seat which contains its own airbags. So there's own airbags at the sides that hold the child in, in the event of any emergency, they grip the child to stop the child being thrown forward onto the seat belts. All very good thinking, great idea, but it's going to cost you 550 quid a pop. But certainly, if you care enough about your kids, then you might want to investigate. We at UK Motor Talk are indebted to Honest John, a fellow motoring website, for bringing to our attention the appalling van MOT statistics that they have just managed to obtain following a freedom of information request from a very, very reluctant DVSA. Based upon MOT failures at the first MOT, i.e. at three years, the surprising news is that Britain's most popular van, the Ford Transit, was among the worst, and there were some surprises in the top ten. The Fiat Doblo came out best, with 84% passing that first MOT, but the Ford Transit came out worst, just 64% of vans passing their first MOT. But the Citroen Dispatch and the Relay and the Vauxhall Movano were nearly as, uh, as bad. Almost 30% of all vans failed their first MOT. But is this about the quality of their build? Is this about their use? Or is this story really more about neglect by their owners? Of concern to the rest of us road users is that, rather worryingly, lighting, brakes and tyres are all among the most common failures. Perhaps as many as 100,000 or so failures were the fault of their owners or businesses or their drivers, I suspect. 
perhaps they should be punished rather than the van manufacturers being castigated, as has been the case in some newspapers. Volkswagen suffers massive drop in sales after US regulators discover that it's failed to comply with the appropriate methods of measuring emissions. In fact, it's cheated. Well, yes, okay, that was the sort of headline that was being circulated nine months or so ago, and VW held up its hands, admitted everything. What surprises me is that the latest car delivery figures for Volkswagen. End of September, they claim to have produced and hopefully sold more cars than they ever have done before. And that includes the US market. Now, I can only conclude from this that when we come to buying cars, we don't listen to the news, we don't take it on board, and people are not as concerned about it as the US regulators were and the European regulators had latterly become. Clearly, if the car's in the right colour and it's the right price, that seems to be what dictates people's buying choices. I find it very strange that such a major story should be so ignored that VW should be crowing that at the end of September they have delivered more cars than ever. That's over 1.1 million cars. Very impressive number. UK Motordog reports. Last week we were invited to a briefing at Brooklands where a unique old car rally was launched which will take place next year and recreates an earlier South American classic which featured such drivers as Fangio and the Maramon brothers. This is your chance to drive 10,000 kilometers of South American back roads, following the original route as closely as possible. Well, we began by asking rally director John Brigden, what was the inspiration for this enormous long distance event? The Grand Prix of South America. It was the only time that's ever been run before is 1948. And that had Fangio as kind of the lead driver there. And in those days, they were mostly sort of Fangio style coupe cars as well. So 1930s? 1930s onwards to, I suppose, the early 50s, we had those. Mm. Then they started to be phased out. So we're going to rerun that event. And we're going to do it 70 years to the second (laughs) when it started before. So they started at midnight in Buenos Aires. We're going to start at midnight in Buenos Aires. And then we're going to have our first section through the night, which is very unusual for a classic car event on its own, I mean, just from that point of view. We can't follow the route exactly. I mean, they had a race in those days. They raced about a 1,000 kilometres a day average, which we can't do now. But we're going to pretty much follow, you know, the spirit of the last event. We're going to try and find some of the gravel roads, some of the interesting places they went to, and we'll add in a few modern bits and pieces with it as well. So from that point of view, it'll be recreation as far as we can do in the modern time. So what what kind of distances are we talking about here? Well, the total distance of the event is 10,000 kilometres. So it's not easy, you know, it's not not short. No, it's not an overnight. And we're going to take 30 days to do that. But with things being the way they are these days, we have to modify the speed. So actually we can probably only do an average of 450, 500 k's a day. Well, that's Which still is quite fair, fair going over that kind of terrain. Presumably. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to find gravel roads, we're going to find little racetracks here and there, you know, maybe a touch of private road. And, of course, these days, the other problem we have is getting through borders. And tricky. there are five countries involved. Five yeah. countries. So, so we're, four, we're going through Argentina, yeah, we're going to Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador and Colombia. The original race actually finished in Venezuela, 
but we don't think we can get into Caracas <laughs> these days. And, and actually, no one was very keen to do that. So, yeah, we're just doing the five countries. There are all those borders to get through. Yeah. And we have our local guys who will sort that out. So, so what, what kind of cars are people taking on events like uh, this? Oh, yeah, we've got an interesting selection. We do have the odd Fangio coming. Oh, that right. is true. There you are. Um, we have a special class for them as well. Uh, we've got some sort of Mercedes SLs, Pagoda style, Lovely. Porsche 911s, 912. We've got some Bentleys coming as well. So, so how, and, how does uh, something like a Porsche cope on terrain like that? Well, I presume he's built it to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Alistair Caldwell, so I think you know, we're quite confident that he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Having run James Hunt in the McLaren days. You so I think, I think he knows <laughs> yeah. what he's doing. And also, I mean, people like him are very self-sufficient. I mean, he doesn't mind getting under his car every night and fixing it. Um, so, you know, he's a nice person to have along. So, I mean, do, do people need to know their cars inside out? I mean, is, is this as much of a mechanic's rally as a driver's rally? I think it really helps if you know your car. But we do know from past experience people don't. So we are providing mechanical backup. We've got our own mechanic there. Uh, also, for those who've got you know who, who want it we're offering them the ability to bring their own mechanic all right only two people have come up with that at the moment and they're all they're sharing their mechanics so it might be one mechanic between three or four cars so presumably this yeah. means that if you know your car is going to wear in certain ways you can put your spare parts in a different car if nothing a well, different vehicle yeah exactly the advantage is they can put their spare parts in the other vehicle and a modern vehicle presumably um, or a more modern vehicle more modern vehicle yeah, I would yeah. say we are, we are after classics <laughs> as well yeah but of course you know when, where you break down will always be in the wrong place of course so, yeah. <laughs> it just there's a law that governs that so from that point of view you know although it would be might be handy for them to have those spares I can almost guarantee they won't be in the right place <laughs> when it comes I mean I'm on the big screen um, next to us here clearly it is not urban it's no. out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. What challenges does that bring for, to both to you as organising it and competitors? Uh, well, yes. I mean, you, fuel for one thing. You know, you've got to you've got to route it so there is fuel every perhaps a couple of hundred k's or mm. something like that at, at the most. But also from our point of view, following it, keeping track of it all, knowing where everybody is these days is very important. Being um, out in the country actually makes that a lot more difficult. So what we decided to do is put trackers on all the cars. And so at least we'll, you know where people so are. So <laughs> at least we know where. We will actually have that uh, website somewhere. So you know anyone who's a friend or family can follow the cars. Yeah. Nice. Uh, but, uh, but also, you know, going this distance, one of the, one of the issues is finding accommodation. And uh, so we're working very hard on that. And in, to some extent, we have to link the days to the accommodation. So, yeah, so the, the days will vary yeah. to get to somewhere. So, I, mean, I mean, hotels and things, probably the biggest issue is how big is the group? So, I mean, how many yeah. cars are involved with this? Well, we think we'll get 35 to 40 cars. So that's already 70 to 80 people, plus our crews and our marshals and so on. So we could be running with 100 plus people, which so, is 50, 50 something rooms, 50 or 60 rooms. So that we've got to feed everybody, you know, dinner. Yeah, find places for them to have lunch as well. <laughs> yeah. With that number of people involved, mm. is it as much of a social occasion as anything else? Do, do you get together in the evenings, or is it a, right, we're at the hotel, 
something rattled in the car earlier, must go and sort that out. Is, is it more that kind of thing? It's, this particular rally is more that kind of thing because it's a competitive event. And, it, and it's so long, presumably, And it's as well. so long. They are going to have to forego their dinner sometimes <laughs> to get their car right for the next day. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, other rallies we do, it might be a bit, a bit more social. Take time, you can get in there and enjoy that first. But no, this one we're trying to create a properly competitive event. And you say it's competitive. How does that work? Is, is there a right. big, big prize at the end? Uh, there won't be any money, but there will be a very big cup. <laughs> There'll be a few cups. The, the honour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The honour of winning this, this will be great, uh, especially as it's a, it's a rally that Fangio, you know, Root Fangio once did. So from that point of view, it's got a lot of history down to it. So, and you could be the next, you could be the next winner. You know. It's only been run once before, as well, hasn't it? Once. So you, this, this, this is the, the next one. Yeah, the own, own one of two. Yeah. yeah. Fangio didn't win it last time, did he? Unfortunately, <laughs> not. He was doing very well, but he he did roll his car. It, uh, I think it was a two hundred meter drop. So it was quite li- yeah, lucky yeah. to survive. Um, on a hundred, well, it was a one thousand three hundred and twenty odd kilometer stage. So I think you probably got you, you've tired. not got any of them, I imagine. No, no, no. no, we no. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the winning that matters, but the taking part. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. From that point of view, yeah. Well, it's a very, very long way to take any car, and particularly an old car. We asked mechanical expert, one of the consultants to the rally, Toby Kilner, what do you need to do to your car, any car? to make it fit for these distances, this sort of pressure of time, and these very rough roads. Uh, the sort of rallies we're doing are long-distance events. So this is a 30-day rally across uh, South America, and it's a long, long way. It's 10,000 Ks. So it's a long way. And so you need to pick your car quite carefully. Obviously, the old adage is choose something that someone else has done for you first. is usually a good start. I was able to spend a vast amount of money on it before you need to. But there's a number of rules on the preparation of your car. Firstly, it's all about uh, care and exactness of what you do. Uh, Secondly, the more modifications you do, the more chances you have of it going wrong, because very often you'll find that the original manufacturer will have spent a long time getting it right and probably knows a lot more about it than you do. (laughs) But you can obviously mix some modern sexy things like shock absorbers and brakes into an old car. For the long-distance event, you're most concerned about the longevity of all the parts and then creature comforts for yourself. For example, a really noisy car will make you tired very quickly. It's like having a chainsaw in your ear all the time and you'll run out of effort quite quickly. And when you get very tired, you then make mistakes. It's a team effort. The driver is driving the car and the navigator is getting to the right place. And the old adage of a rally is that the, the driver wins the rally and the navigator loses it for him. So <laughs> all our cars have to run some sort of rally trip meter from the old-fashioned Halders through to Brantz's to the very sexy modern digital jobs, which actually most of us are fairly ancient. I can't see the bloody things anyway. Uh, also, I push around bot- wrong button and can't never find my way back to where it's meant to be. Uh, things like roll cage things are optional. Um, I'm a believer in a roll cage, um, having had a number of unfortunate accidents. So... Driver comfort, navigator comfort is very important. How you lay the cab out is important so that you've got good, good visibility, preferably comfortable seats. You feel comfortable. Once, once that's sorted out, it takes, you know, it could take a whole day to put a pair of seats in because you need to feel confident when you're in the car. Then the old adage, how do you make a car go fast? Make it stop really quickly. So work gently on the brakes. 
And don't try and reinvent the wheel. You know, you'll find somebody else somewhere will have done the brakes on that vehicle. And if they've done that, they've probably learned by mistakes and it's probably their third attempt at doing it. Just bunging sexy parts for a catalogue isn't always the answer, although it, sometimes it is. So when it comes to you know, a 50-year-old car, say, what, what is there in a 50-year-old car that, if it hasn't been adapted, what would I definitely need to change? What, what is there, a, a standard British car, that would definitely need some adaptation to okay. get by in South America? Well, the first thing is, in Europe, Northern Europe, where we all live, um, most cars are used to being between 20 and 25 degrees. It's a big change to going to 45 degrees. The second you do that, anything that's not 100% of the car, that's not just the cooling system, it's everything, will turn its toes up and die instantaneously. So the first thing you're looking at is a fan that's fine for driving to London and gets a bit warm in the traffic in London is never enough when you're in the middle of the Atacama Desert. So you'll be looking at a thicker and larger radiator if possible. You'll be looking at some oil cooling, some forced air cooling for the oil and for the radiator. Preference you can switch on and off. And it's a funny thing. You can have a really, really hot day at 40, 45 degrees of heat and you could be doing 70 miles an hour, which you think the engine's working really hard and it's producing loads of heat. It is. You also got 70 miles an hour of air it's rushing maximum, over the Maximum cooling, yeah. And you can switch the fan off. Yeah. It's, it's quite, you know, and then you get to the town and if you don't switch the fan on, it boils instantly, but you're only doing 10 miles an hour. And it, it sort of almost seems a bit sort of strange, really. Um, tires are important. I mean, we normally try and run an eight-ply van tire purely because they've got stronger sidewalls. The sort of events we're doing, they're not a out-and-out professional rally. This is a competitive event across an entire vast continent. You know, South America is still one of the, the last chunks of it, unexplored bits of the world. And you're trying to take a 56-year-old car across this quite competitively. So <laughs> just to put it in perspective, we estimate that the average classic car does between 15 to 1,800 miles a year, and that's being generous. So that's about 2,500 miles a year. We're going to do on this first rally 868 kilometres in the first two days. And the first day of it is at night. We start at midnight. So that puts it in perspective. So things like a dynamo probably won't put up with two extra lights in the front, a heater, etc., etc. Out of, say, 50 cars that start, do you expect 50 cars to finish? Ha! Ah. <laughs> I'd love to say yes. Um, I'm one of the support mechanics, uh, so I run a, a team of us, will be six of us on the next event, and uh, we, we will facilitate, if we can, a repair, he says, yes. ho- he says hopefully. That get the gaffer um, tape out. Yeah, you know, amazing what gaffer tape and can of WD-40 does. Um, we ask people to bring a sort of, not a set exact amount of, of parts. There's a couple of things about preparation which we find really important, so... There's a rule in rallying, which is when you're doing regularity, which is trying to keep the, 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 same, the right speed on a road. Mm-hmm. So the right speed on the wrong road is far less useful than the wrong speed on the right road. So that's the actual driving and the rallying side of it. The bit I like is in the preparation is the right part for the wrong car is next to useless in the middle <laughs> of the Amazon. <laughs> I've got a spare, don't worry. <laughs> Absolutely, and it might, say, it might say Lotus or, or Ford on the box, but it's for a different Ford that you, which you happen to have with you. There are quite you. a variety of different There are quite a few different notices. So. And um, 
We've had this a number of times when you get the bag out, oh, yes, I've got one of those, and you get it out and say, but that's not for this car. Of course it is. <laughs> so we, we, I'm a great believer that all your spares, which are new, you put on the car. Right. Then you know you've got the full life of the spare. It's entire, every item has a finite life. Its entire life is ready for you to use. All the parts you take off have varying degrees, greater or lesser extent, the remainder of its life left. But more importantly, you know it's going to fit. It's been on the car. Whatever happens, <laughs> you can bolt the bloody thing on yep. or screw it on or stick it on and it will fit. So we take quite a lot of kit with us. Um, I, I'm doing a list for everybody and, and everyone says, my God, you need an articulated lorry to carry it. <laughs> in fact, I put it in a, a large toolbox. The whole lot goes in a large toolbox. It's quite heavy. So that goes to your next thing. So when you're building your car, it's very easy to take everything, including the kitchen sink, and my wife loves doing that. Actually, your biggest enemy in a car is weight. Weight is the thing that will wear everything out, wear your suspension out, your brakes out, your springs out. It will make the body fatigue much faster. Makes the car more difficult to drive, makes it more difficult to handle, tires work harder, <laughs> everything gets hotter. Weight is your enemy. <laughs> Weight is your enemy. I mean, it really is. It's, and, and so you have this fine balancing line of taking the parts you might need for 30 days, doing, you know, thinking of 8,000 miles and driving it really hard, mm. and having so much stuff that you break all your springs, all your truck absorbers, and all your wheel bearings because it's so bloody heavy. <laughs> Dragging you know, the whole the thing ground. Exactly, and yeah. it's just not fast enough. It's no fun. It's impossible yeah. to drive, and then the brakes run out. So it's a very difficult balance, and that's partly uh, experience, uh, having a go. I mean, uh, it would be unwise to build a car, even if it was done by a professional, and then go straight to a 30-day rally. Mm. Yeah. You will find you certain things. Down. Yeah, I mean, we looked after a car abroad, and it, they did exactly that. And halfway through, the engine blew up. And it hadn't been put together quite properly. Mm. And actually, it hadn't done 2,000 miles. And if it had done three or 4,000 miles, just Before to leaving, shake yeah. it all down, then you'd have had that problem. Yeah. And it's easy to repair. And you know, these are expensive events. And if you can't finish it because your car can't get there, it's... It's truly disappointing. It's, it's ruined everything. And it's <laughs> Having said that, the Avis, yeah, the Avis hard car can be very comfortable. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. How many cars finish? Um, we're going to have about forty cars in the next event. If more than three don't finish, I'll be upset, and that's usually because an engine is actually physically blown up, or it's a very valuable car and something like a back axle's gone. So I can't just stick a lorry axe under the back of it because it would butcher the car um, but we do often have things on, tra on trailers for two or three days while parts are flown in it's always, it's always a sort of funny game between man and machine and the elements and it's all rather fun and uh, you know if you have the chance get out there and have a go so if you really do fancy this as an automotive challenge for next year then um, bespokerallies.com is the place to find all the details and if you do decide to give it a go, do let us know, because we'd like to follow it and uh, cheer you on your way, but also hear your stories afterwards. UK Motor Talk, Motorsport News. F1 Team McLaren have arranged a rather unusual and rather complex sponsorship deal with LAT56. Not only do LAT get to market a new luggage range based upon all the McLaren logos and markings and brandings and so on and so on. But as a quid pro quo, now 
all of McLaren's team members, everyone that's travelling on behalf of McLaren, will get a new set of luggage. Everything down to, from a, a suitcase to a wash bag, everything is included. A most um, interesting reciprocal arrangement, but I have to say it's tinkering at the edges. Having lost all of their major sponsors over the recent years due to their very poor performances, it's about time some return was made to a bit nearer the front of the grid and some real money might be coming in instead of this slightly dinky sponsorship arrangement. With the retention of Fernando Alonso in 2018, albeit only for one year, surely he must know something is going to improve, otherwise he wouldn't be staying. I don't believe that Fernando is going to be tempted just by the money. I don't believe Fernando is going to be tempted just by promises. He knows that something's going to happen. And Zach Brown, the chief executive now of McLaren, has clearly persuaded him that there will be an upturn, but that upturn will need some funding. So expect more sponsorship announcements, because if they don't come, things are going to get very, very difficult. Once they go Renault, all those things have got to be paid for and all that expenditure has to be covered by somebody. And McLaren themselves, while they're making lots of money on the sports cars, I think the sports cars division is less and less keen to keep funding the Formula One team, or at least carrying it entirely. Look out for more announcements soon. Well, we've had some very bizarre American Grand Prix over the years, but last weekend's uh, Grand Prix at Austin, Texas, surely ranks highly amongst the more bizarre. A few years ago, when the race at Indianapolis was bombarded by the American crowd with cans, bottles and whatever came to hand, after only six cars decided to take part in the race after a tyre blowout scare. Before that, we've had assorted car parks in Las Vegas, uh, Detroit, and all kinds of places that were hugely inappropriate for motor racing, having ignored places like Laguna Seca, which is one of the great racing tracks in the world. But there you go. But last weekend's Grand Prix was completely American. It was razzmatazz, it was over the top. All of the drivers were introduced by almost a Disney-like character who uh, shouted out their names and gave them all names. Daniel Ricciardo, Honey Badger... Perhaps not. Just a bit bizarre. And then the two main protagonists, as though it were a Hollywood movie, lined up like the Roman games in their respective chariots and all the others fell into line, only to be flagged away, which I think has never happened in the uh, current era of Grand Prix, by a man with a green flag, in this case Usain Bolt. And if you're going to wave off a set of Formula One cars at full chat, pretty good idea if you pick the fastest man in the world to do so he got out of the way very quickly proved to be a very good race sebastian vettel took the lead almost immediately but seriously didn't look like holding on to it beset with an apparent lack of horsepower but other problems lewis soon reeled him in a fairly uh, daring but authoritative overtake and then lewis was gone and off into the distance and that pretty much was the story of the race, but there were some great battles and some great performances within there. By lap 10, the race had settled down a little bit, and Max was making incredible progress from his 16th position and working his way back up through the field. There was a great scrap between uh, Bottas and Ricardo, which was just brilliant as they you know, really drove each other right to the limit without touching. Quite extraordinary. And Alonso got up as far as 7th. He dropped back a little bit later. But then uh, Ricardo was out with his engine gone. 
And by this time, Verstappen was up to fourth. And at one stage, doing the tyre changes, he actually briefly led the race, which was um, good to see. It was very heartening to see that from 16th, somebody could climb that far. One of the other great drives of the day has to have been Carlos Sainz. His first drive in that car, the new car he's driving for Renault, his first time out and a very good result in seventh and, you know, a higher at various times through the field. So clearly he's found his right team, his right car, and he's going to progress very well. So good move for him. By the middle of the race, it was very clear Hamilton was well out in front. Vettel was in second, but not that close and perhaps struggling. Bottas was third, Raikkonen fourth, and Verstappen up that way too. Interesting diversion of uh, a very unhappy Alonso telling his engineer just what he really thought of the team, the car, and the world in general, um, which was uh, unusually wasn't edited out. So uh, n- nice to hear uh, some frank comments. Let's hope he's next year, having now signed for McLaren, another year let's hope his next year is rather better than this one's been so far Carla Sainz then featured uh, in one of the best overtakes we've seen in a long time uh, on Perez who really doesn't give up that easily but on this occasion it was a very daring maneuver and he made it stick and it, good for him Raikkonen followed shortly thereafter with a very nice move on Bottas to move him up and then of course the inevitable happened as Ferrari swapped Vettel and Raikkonen so that uh, Vettel could uh, take second then occurred the most contentious point of the Grand Prix and the, the thing that has really, I think, left a sour taste in the mouths of many who watched because very, very shortly, with just two corners to go in a very, very daring manoeuvre, Verstappen overtook Raikkonen to take third place to guarantee him a podium place or so he thought. Uh, Raikkonen then slowed down and sort of cruised across the line. The fight had gone out of him. Bizarrely, we cut to a scenario where Raikkonen enters the toweling room just before they go on the podium, and Verstappen is effectively asked to leave. He's no longer in the running. Now, the only thing I can make of this is that, yes, he broke a rule, a rule that, in fact, most of the drivers have broken through the course of the day. He put, briefly, all four wheels outside of the white line. It had been happening all day. It was very unfair to pick on him. But pick on him, the stewards certainly did. Or if not on him, perhaps on the team. Or perhaps on its team principal, who was vociferous in his um, later appeal, if we can call it that, to the stewards. An appeal that was bound to go nowhere because a judge of fact would say that the rule had been broken. The fact that others had broken it was an irrelevance. A great pity. Verstappen really, really had earned that third place, and Raikkonen, quite simply, hadn't. Both looked very uncomfortable about it later when interviewed in the pen. Verstappen said one or two regrettable things. Not a good idea to call the stewards idiots, even if some of us know that they are. That shouldn't take away from the fact that Lewis won that race, but not the World Championship, but he is now 66 points ahead of Sebastian Vettel, his nearest rival, and it really, really does look like he will take the World Championship at Mexico at the next race next week. And Mercedes, of course, took the Constructors' Championship for the fourth time in a row, a, a completely unassailable set of points that... You know, just nobody can get anywhere near. So who was the driver of the day? Well, there were several drives of the day, but really it has to go to Verstappen. You know, there's that old slogan, we was robbed. He certainly was. He was robbed of his podium finish. Certainly number one driver of the day. 
But uh, an, another drive of the day, I think, must go to Carlos Sainz because he drove the new car that he'd barely spent any time on brilliantly. Sadly, Brendan Hartley uh, dragged up the rear. Having been put in the car at virtually no notice, he did a sterling job just to keep it going. Well done him, and I think we'll be seeing a little more of him. But uh, it looks as though there'll be some yet more driver lineup changes when we get into Mexico uh, because Pierre Gasly is back and Daniel Kvyat is back out. It's all change. Coming soon. The London to Brighton Veteran Car Run. The most challenging run for veteran cars, i.e. those built before 1905, is to take place as usual on November the 5th. And we have been invited to record all of the action. And given the ages of these cars, some of them nearly 120 years old, perhaps they're in action too. But we hope most of them make it. The run, which has been held regularly now since uh, the early 1920s, apart from the war years, is uh, a, a celebration of the tearing up of the act which forbade these cars, or all the early cars, from driving at greater than four miles an hour. This was a piece of legislation which required a red flag to be held in front of each car as it progressed, and a man to be walking in front of said car carrying the red flag. Fortunately, the emancipation legislation, as it's referred to, tore up this requirement and rather daringly raised the speed limit to 14 miles an hour. Now, not too many men with red flags can run for any distance in front of a car at 14 miles an hour, so they were all out of a job as well. This year's entry is by far the largest ever, over 450 cars. Bear in mind the newest of which, the youngest of which, is 112 years old. And some go back much further. Uh, the earliest car this year is an 1895 Peugeot, a car that was only built just 11 years after Dame LeBenz invented the very first car in 1884. So uh, to uh, still be surviving and regularly running is really quite remarkable. And one of the features of this year's event, which will include a lot of French cars, is to celebrate just how much the early days of motoring were populated by French makes. And although the Germans invented the car, they failed to uh, do very much with it. The French really uh, invented road rallying, road racing and anything competitive to do with the car. And they built hundreds of different marks, many of which will be represented in this year's run. This enormous parade of two, three, four-wheel cars will um, set off from Hyde Park at daybreak with the ritual tearing up of a red flag and will then process all the way to Brighton. The earliest cars are expected in Brighton just after 10 o'clock. So they're no slouches, some of those cars. They really aren't. So look forward to it. We'll bring you all the action, audio and video of these uh, wonderful veteran motor cars and talk to a lot of their owners and find out just what it is that bites people about old cars, what it is that makes them turn out in the middle of the night, effectively, to not race, because it isn't a race, but certainly to arrive as early as possible on Brighton Seafront. And there will be huge crowds en route that always are, whatever the weather. It really is quite amazing. You've been listening to UK Motor Talk News, a compilation of motoring and motorsport stories that have occurred in recent days. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Listen out for our next podcast in a week's time. And of course, don't forget www.ukmotortalk.co.uk for news, views, silly ideas, and all kinds of things that motoring nuts might want to write about, think about, talk about.